It's Baxi's musical podcast. Okay, I'm about to make a ridiculously bold statement. Bold, but not untrue. After more than 170 episodes of this podcast, perhaps you might have noticed that many of the people who I've interviewed keep mentioning that outside the Beatles and Bob Dylan, one name stands alone as perhaps being the most influential musical figure over the last half century. One guy, just him. This is a man whose importance and influence have cast an enormous cultural shadow in ways that have never been duplicated and perhaps never will again. Even seven years after his death, there is no question that the legacy of David Bowie is profound and could never be overstated. Go ahead. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me that David Bowie's influence wasn't an explosive game changer from the very moment that he released Hunky Dory in 1971. Tell me that he wasn't the biggest rock star in the world when Ziggy Stardust fell to earth in 1972. The truth is you can't. In the early to mid-1970s, David Bowie was the biggest pop star in the world, period. David Bowie was everywhere. This is a guy who revived the careers of Lou Reed and Mott the Hoople, a guy who wrote music with John Lennon. This was a guy who was starring in films and theatrical productions and was singing freaking Christmas songs with Bing Crosby. And in January of 1976, having already put the Ziggy Stardust persona on ice for the last two and a half years, David Bowie began what would become one of his most artistically important periods of his career, beginning with the album Station to Station, where he took on the persona of the Thin White Duke. The following year, he produced The Idiot, the first solo album from Iggy Pop of the Stooges, and then he began to release what many believe was his most artistically significant run of albums, commonly known as the Berlin Trilogy, Low, Heroes, and The Lodger. Three albums that not only included amazing talents like Brian Eno and producer Tony Visconti, these were albums that included other musicians such as Robert Fripp and Adrian Ballou. But the real backbone of all of these albums was the rhythm section of guitarist Carlos Alomar, Dennis Davis on drums, and my guest today, bass player George Murray. George Murray played on five of the most revered albums of David Bowie's career. David could have played with anybody, but he kept choosing to play with George from Station to Station through the entire Berlin trilogy to Scary Monsters and Super Creeps to even playing bass on that Iggy Pop album, George Murray was about as good as it gets. But once Bowie decided to move on into the next phase of his career, he dissolved that band. And following that decision, George played on The Red and the Black, the first solo album from Jerry Harrison of The Talking Heads in 1980. But following that, George quietly retreated to Los Angeles to focus exclusively on becoming an educator. On June 17th and 18th, George will be participating at the David Bowie World Fan Convention in New York City. This is a two-day event that will give fans a look at David's entire career, and George is going to be a part of it. George is an amazing talent who rarely grants interviews. So as a longtime fan, it is my honor to welcome the great George Murray on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, George, how are you? Mike, I'm, I'm fine. Nice to, nice to see you. Nice to meet you. This is such a thrill for me. And, and I'm, I'm saying that not just because I'm another David Bowie loving nutcase. I'm, I'm saying this because I also uh, love George McRae. 
<laughs> so, really? I, you, I've always felt, and I mean this, I have always felt that Rock Your Baby was about 15 minutes too short. <laughs> I, I was, in fact, I was listening to uh, Rock Your Baby and a bunch of other stuff uh, today. Just, it's, it's so hard to get like you know credit information on his recording, especially the early stuff. But, mm-hmm. and I, and I know the George McRae World Fan Conventions are a little bit down the road. But, but tell me about playing with with George and how did you start playing with him? Well, by some way, shape, or form, George McRae and his wife were in New York City. And they were preparing for um, a, a road tour starting in Toronto. And they were leaving for Toronto, um, not the, the day the day after. So I got a, I was friends with, uh, and they, they were changing musicians for some reason. I'm not sure why. But there was a friend of mine, a, key, a keyboardist uh, that I played with in, in New York. I loved him. His name was uh, Jack, Jack, Jack Burvick, mm-hmm. or Jock, sometimes they go with and we, we would talk on the phone and, and so, and, you know, regularly during the day, whenever. So this one early afternoon, I called him up and we were, we were just going through our regular conversation. But <laughs> the clear blue, he says to me, hey, you want a gig? And I he said, <laughs> <laughs> he said, sure, because that's what I was doing at the time. And he said, well, come on down, come on down with me to this studio in New York. And we, we got to audition. He was auditioning also. Uh, so we went in and uh, they picked myself. They picked Jack. Um, they picked a drummer named Brad Stone, uh, another local boy from Queens, New York. And um, the guitar player, I can't remember at the moment, but that's how we ended up with him. And then and we rehearsed. We came in the next day and rehearsed the show. And then the day after, the morning after that, we were on our way to Toronto. Wow. That's a that's a pretty quick turnaround. That was a very quick turnaround, and that was my first step onto the, the road touring. Besides, uh, up until that very moment, I was just local in New York. I was one of the, the the young musicians in New York City trying to just get out there and play. That's amazing. So you you uh, as I understand it, you toured with him for a good nine ten months or so. Yes, we we did uh, uh, we did two tours of Europe. Uh, we did two tours in the United States. You know, they they weren't large tours, but they were, you know, we were out for a number of weeks. Jack, who he made it, Jack made it through the first and second U.S. tour. He made it through the first <laughs> European tour. And halfway through the second one, he said, I had enough. I got to go. <laughs> so he left. I, I mean, he, he notified people and we replaced him. But uh, th- that was kind of shocking for me. But, you know, Jack was, a little, was uh, a little more. He had other things happening in his life. Than I did. I was okay, so. so you go from from playing with George and then suddenly one day you get a phone call from Dennis Davis. Tell me if I'm getting mm. this wrong. He calls you and say, hey, I, I know you're in the middle of something, but how'd you like to do something 10 times better? Tell me about Almost. that call. <laughs> there was a period of, period of time between George McRae and, and, and that getting that call from Dennis and uh, other things I had done in there, just some Broadway stuff and some other gigs around town. But I was, uh, I, I played with Dennis around the city and I, I loved him. Dennis was, it was God, nobody played like Dennis. He was just amazing. And uh, it was, it was September, September, 1975. I was living at home with my parents 
no cell phones, <laughs> no voicemail, not, not even answering machines then. So anyway, I had left the house to go. I was heading into Manhattan for some reason. I left the house in Queens. I forgot something. I came back to the house. And I was walking up the driveway. The kitchen windows open. I hear my father say, wait a minute. Here he is. And I walk in. He hands me the phone. It's Dennis. Dennis was already working with David. Um, and uh, we, we talked, Chad, and he came right out. He said, you know, David is changing his bass player. We'd like you to, would you like to come and, and, and play? He's, he's doing a new album in, in um, he's working in, uh, in Los Angeles. Would you, would you like to come in and, you know, step in or try it out? I can't remember his exact words, but I, I said, sure. <laughs> of course. How are you going to say and, no to that? <laughs> but here, here's the thing. The only, the only reason I knew of David was because of Dennis and Carlos. Really? Really, I, I there was one there was one afternoon when the Diamond Dogs album uh, was first released. I was walking down Sixth Avenue in Manhattan. RCA Records had their uh, office in one of the, the office buildings on Sixth Avenue, in Midtown Manhattan. And the, the trend at that time was you take your main artist, you put them up on a billboard, and that's that's part of your promotion. And I was walking on Sixth Avenue, and I looked at this car, and I said to myself. Who is that? <laughs> you know, what is that? <laughs> a lot of people ask that question at the time. <laughs> of the diamond dog. Yes. So anyway, so by my, my but I, I did know after I checked a little while, Dennis worked with, with David, Carlos worked with David, uh, going back to the Young Americans album. And I think Carlos might have been there even before that. He might have been in there in the Diamond Dog days, as, as far as I remember. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. You know, it's it's so funny because I was uh, I was watching some videos on YouTube the other day of David in that in that period. And, and there's a there's a part where he's playing. You guys are playing Stay from Station to Station, which I mm -hmm. love that song. And David is just he's just kind of like leaning back watching you guys play. You and Carlos and Dennis, and and he's got the biggest enormous smile on his face. Like even he couldn't believe that he put together a band that was just this great. As a guy who was in that band, surrounded by, I mean, it's it's m more than world class musicians. I mean, it's like one genius after another. Tell me what that was was like for a musician to be in that moment with these kinds of guys of of that caliber. It brought each each musician because of their caliber, because of the way things gel together, brought out more of the potential and more of the musicianship and more of the artistry from each other. That's what that's what it did. So David's standing just back in admiring his handiwork, <laughs> you know, you know. That would I. That's kind of what happens. It was uh, we 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 pushed each other forward. There's a video with Adrian Ballou in it, and it's, it's a great song. Anyway, it's a great song for him to have played in. So I'm I, I'm watching this, and it just it's just so funny to me how clearly proud he was of what you guys were doing to help his music and to help his his vision. Mm -hmm. It's really a remarkable piece of video to see. It was, and 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 that part of the show, the the whole show was was remarkable, and and uh, it it brought out things in us, it brought out things in musicians, it you know, and invited uh, 
in the 1975 tour and invited some of my friends and my my mother to the <laughs> to the show at Madison Square Garden and they had you know they were in in the front a couple of rows in the orchestra there and um they were they were even amazed they had never seen anything they had never even envisioned anything like that yeah so it it, it was revolutionary this was a time before we get into the uh, the Berlin trilogy. Obviously, there's there's a time in between that and Station to Station where he, David was having his own struggles with you know, with addiction. A lot of people didn't understand the thin white Duke persona that he was leading to. As far as 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 his vision and and his health was concerned, did you did you see any of that? Did you suspect that there were health issues going on, or was he just too focused on the music with you? He was focused on the music with us and, um, you know, the Station to Station album, which was done in Los Angeles uh, at, um, as then it was Cherokee Studios. The only thing that, that struck me as, as not, not, not really odd, but just this is the reality, I guess, <laughs> what it's like, uh, was that it took a long time just to do rhythm tracks. Mm. And where I came, you know, from my work in New York, the rhythm tracks were usually done and over with in a three or four hour session. Um, you know, there might have been a rehearsal, but David was kind of like writing the material as we went along. And that kind of added to it. And I, I, I you know, I, I don't really want to, I can't comment about what might have been happening with him personally because at the time i didn't really know i didn't understand it but he he would it did just take him a while to get the music he wanted us to play together for us to play it so it went it went on for a little while and yes there was there was some partying and some enjoyment that went along with it um <laughs> but it, it, it you know for at, at my at my level at where I was, because as far as I was, you know, I was there, but I was essentially still auditioning. When David and said, you know, when David, I'm sorry, when Dennis told me about the gig and David's um, assistant, Corinne, when she called me, invited me out to play, I, it was an audition. It was a live audition. Um, and uh, I was, I don't want to say I was on edge, but I was very, very, I was watching my P's and Q's. By the time the P's and the Q's have been watched, mm. all of a sudden he's taking you guys out to France to record with Iggy Pop for his first solo album, The Idiot, which is a great, great record. Tell me about about that experience. These guys had known each other for a while and had gone, you know, had become very close. What was it like to be out, first of all, in France in that moment with these two guys? I we recorded a couple of songs for Iggy. We recorded low, and that's the, that was the only time I recorded in France was was for was, the on the low album. Now you, there's something else on my discography uh, there. I don't recall going to France with with David and Iggy. I don't even recall really working with Iggy Brian Eno. Yes, right, <laughs> but Iggy not so much. He was around occasionally. Sure. Let me ask you about Brian Eno because I've you know I've talked to a number of people who have worked with him over the years. Jerry Harrison, I've talked to Chris Franz from the Talking mm -hmm. Heads, and, and a number of other people. And you know, here's a guy of of enormous creativity, and he himself will say that I'm not a musician. I'm just a guy who takes ideas and, and manipulates them. You obviously worked with him on a number of different projects with David. What was that like? You know, 
to to work with with Brian was did you view him as such as someone who was not only creative but maybe even beyond that um i viewed i viewed him as as, as someone who had something special and in, in both in in on the creative end on the technical end of the music and on his relationship with david which i didn't really understand while it was going on even over 3 albums but looking back on it I can see how that dynamic worked together. And, uh, you know, there are, there are pieces of it where the, no, by that, on that recording, it was just Dennis, myself, and Carlos, where the three of us were involved and even contributed to some of the creativity on those three albums. But a lot of it was done when we were, when we were gone, at least me and Dennis. Carlos might have been there a little while longer. But I, I did see that, that Brian had a, a very significant, influence on on david and that music and then they continued to work together what, what i with the limited piece that i saw of david and and uh, iggy together i saw that more as david supporting iggy and pushing him forward mm. or, or should say helping him forward is a better way of putting it as you guys were getting set to record low and obviously between you know low and heroes and and the lodger this is a pretty experimental period in, in mm -hmm. david's life did you understand that? I mean, obviously, this is a guy who's had you know a million hits and has done it has an incredible amount of fans. But a lot of fans at that moment when these albums were being released, not all of the fans understood it. Like a lot of them still wanted to hear changes in Suffragette City and and maybe mm -hmm. not hear what was going on on side two of Low, which was you know mostly mm -hmm. instrumental. What was it that he told you he was looking for? Or was it just an assumed thing? Because, I mean, it really is a very avant-garde approach to his music, even though some of the best songs he ever wrote are on those records. First, let me say this. That was a long time ago. <laughs> and, 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 and what may have been explained to us, you know, it, you know it's probably still in my long-term memory, but I, I would really have to dig to find that. And um, it... it he, my, my remembrance is this, Lowe was done at, um, at a, a farm uh, on the outskirts of Paris, that I don't remember the name of the studio, where the owner or whoever had uh, turned, you know, part of the, of the barn into this magnet, it was a good studio, and surprisingly, it was a good studio, but it, it was, just, David would just bring, bring us ideas of he wanted us to play this or this was a song that he had or he kind of let the the rhythm he let the rhythm kind of develop by itself or he let us develop the rhythm around it and he he took that at least on the on this on the side that uh, was not just instrumental with with him and, and brian he took he took those this side that had dennis and carlos and i on it and he i think from there he from there uh brian and david developed that into the finished product so what that meant was when dennis and i left the studio what we heard what we had remembered playing <laughs> what came out on the album as far as the, as a fan goes i listen to especially now i think i listen more carefully to the to the rhythm section of those of those records one he had an awful lot of trust in you to to mm -hmm. play and make it work for him. 
But as the time went on and, and you get through those three records and into Scary Monsters, it's like the basis of that rhythm section, you and Dennis in particular, in my opinion, just seemed to get better and better. Like there was something, there was a, there was a clear chemistry between the two of you as, as you were playing. You know, drummers and bass players, you know, have a symbiotic relationship at, at, at its highest level when, it, when it's working. And you guys certainly did that. Tell me about playing with Dennis. You had known him for a good period of time before that, but to have the experience of doing not just a record, but five records with Dennis, what was that like? And, and tell me a little bit about him. Dennis loved to play. He just, he just loved to play. And, um, and as, as I mentioned earlier to you, he had a, he had a, he had a very unique sense of, he had a unique sense of rhythm and a neat and a unique force behind him. And, and there was something I'll tell you about that I found out later about the two of us that we had in common, but he, uh, we would gel together and this may be a contributing factor. I think it was, is that I would always key off of him. I would always listen to how he would interpret something first and then, and then support that. That I think was one of the, one of the reasons why that audition that I was on for station to station, I think uh, that gelled um, because Dennis, felt that I was solid to enable the other things to develop around him and the other players involved. So that, that, that's that base, that solidity, that just got better and better and better until and culminating in, in scary monsters. I, I kind of thought that station to station was one of my favorite albums. So was heroes, mm -hmm. scary monsters had some good tracks on it. Low had a couple of tracks I can pull off of it. Lodger, uh, larger, I kind of have to, you know, to really, which one of these do I, I like the most, but there, there's things on there. So my, my playing with Dennis got stronger and better and stronger and better and stronger and better. And I, I kind of like to think that he enjoyed playing with me and just from, you know, my observations, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, I think Dennis was happy with the way we played together. I would think he would have to be. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, just by listening to it. But you said you learned you learned something about him too. What what was that? After um, after he had passed away, I learned that. Okay, so my my background, going all the way, both Dennis and I have a background in jazz, and uh, either uh, what I like to call groove jazz. I mean, Dennis had worked with Roy Ayers and a number of other people. He and Dennis would play with anybody, but. Um, I was a little more looking more toward the, the, the free form stuff. And this is when I was very younger. So one of the famous, uh, or most famous jazz quartets is, um, the one that John Coltrane had put together mm. with McCoy Tyner, <clears throat> Jimmy Garrison and Elvin Jones. I had come across an ad in the Village Voice at one time when I was looking for somebody to, to help me uh, with instruction on upright bass that I was playing, and Jimmy Garrison was giving lessons, and I went and studied with him for a while. This is, this is way before David. Come to find out later that Dennis had studied with Elvin Jones, and those two influences on both of us put together, you know, it, it was, that was beneath the surface. You know, that was definitely beneath the surface as far as David's music was concerned, but it was still there. 
and, and I wish that that either he or I had, had realized that when we were still, you know, together. What a remarkable experience that had to be. I mean, two giants and jazz. I mean, you know, Elvin's a remarkable drummer. It's just like mm-hmm. what a what a great experience for the two of you. It was it, it, it was it was they were individual experiences, but they were great on our musical development. Yeah. That actually, when we when we are got together, it was one of the it was one of the the factors that we brought with us. I interviewed uh, Adrian Ballou a while back, and uh, you know we talked about David on on a on probably a little bit more of a personal level. I think you know for for fans, they they see David Bowie as this distant and, and unapproachable character. You know, at least to you know people who are observing from the outside. But one of the things that Adrian said is you know that once you got past that, once you got to be is someone that he trusted. He was actually a very warm and ingratiating guy who who let down his guard and that artifice and really supported the people around him. Iggy Pop would be a, a, a great example, and and there are, I'm sure, dozens others that that would support this. But when it really came down to who he was as a person, he was a very, very kind and, and generous man. Was that your experience with him too? Yes, he, he was he was generous. He was uh <clears throat> Mild mannered, uh, good way of putting it, and uh, he was gracious, well read, and uh, and knowledge on different parts of the performing arts, whether it be movies or whether it be literature, books or art. He he knew things. He knew things. He knew things that that I in areas that I was you know at twenty four years old I was not I was not really uh, that. Uh, aware of and, and so our conversations were kind of were not that in depth but we were when we did you know whenever we talked we, we, we may want to talk about superficial stuff but it was always gracious and enjoyable you know and uh sometimes i i, I wish that i had uh, had been able to spend more time with him uh you know just talking about this that or the other thing or just you know shooting the breeze but i i didn't i didn't have that much time with him because of you know how things were were put together and everybody's going in different directions at the same time in 1980 there's some things that are that are going on with him on a business level he leaves rca he signs with emi and then he decides at some point to dissolve the band and and move on to something different and that would be like you know the, the let's dance record mm-hmm. was that an amicable situation i mean did you realize that, that that it had run its course or would you have continued to play with him if he wanted to um the years before when i got the call from dennis and he said to me david is changing his bass player i knew then that at some time and then, and as I learned about how David's career had developed, that things would change as he changed. So when that change took place, it was it was very unsettling for me. But I kept remind I kept reminding myself, well, I, I knew it was coming. <laughs> I, I just didn't know when. <laughs> you know, was it amicable? It, you know, it wasn't. Uh, it, it was okay. Let me just say it that way. Let me say it, it, it was okay. It um, uh, I, I would have dearly loved to to would have loved to have been able to continue with him, but I think he was looking for something else. At the point where that that band dissolves and uh, you start looking for other things to do, you played on uh, Jerry Harrison's first solo album, the the Red and the Black, which is actually a, 
a very underrated record. It's actually a really good one. But then after that, it, it appears like you distanced yourself from music to focus on education. Tell me about that decision and, and, and what led to that. Um, that album you, you just mentioned, I was, that was one of the few that I did here in Los Angeles. I wasn't making the same type of connections in Los Angeles that I had in New York, because I grew up in New York. I, right. I knew people in the, in the neighborhood that were players, and from there, that branched out from there. When I moved to Los Angeles, I had the resources to do that, but I didn't have the same connection list. I didn't have the same contacts. in, in So things didn't quite turn out the same way. And there were a number of things that I did with local singers, songwriters, and performers, and a couple of bands I worked with that were very good. They just they, they didn't go anywhere. I, I started working. Uh, I, I moved into the business end of the educational system. And I, I did that for, you know, mainly because I, I, I needed, I wasn't able to make a living anymore in, in, the, uh, in the music industry. Not to the degree where, uh, yeah, I could have gone out and found work, but most of the work I was able to find, I didn't really, I, I wasn't able to put my heart into it. The heart's not in it, don't do it. So I, uh, I that kind of, you know, kind of tapered off and tapered off and tapered off. And I, I started, I, first of all, I took a job as a delivery driver for a few years. I, I, was, I was delivering flowers which was a great gig, actually, because everybody likes to get flowers. And, and, the, and the business owners, they took very good care of me. I, I was amazed at how well I was treated, but I needed to make more money. So I saw, I saw an ad for one of the local school districts in 1986, and I went and applied for a job. Essentially, as a, um, uh, I, I was coordinating some of the transportation for high school kids, not on the school bus level, but just you know, on, on school to school stuff. Anyway, it was it was a clerical it was a clerical entry job, almost maybe a supervisor level, but uh, you know, I stayed there for thirty five years, and I you know I came in on entry level, but I retired as an assistant superintendent. Very good. Thank you. And I was I was uh, tasked with and responsible for taking care of all the facilities, the custodial, the groundskeeping, the construction, the the capital projects, all of that multi million dollar budgets. So all of that, you know, just by me, I was the guy who answered the phone. I was the guy that would get back to you if you needed. I was the guy they called to fix a problem. It was the weekend or middle of the night. Yes, I was. I was that guy. And they, they appreciated that also. So that me committing to that level of responsibility, then my involvement in, in the music industry kind of just tapered and tapered and tapered and tapered and tapered until it was essentially non-existent for a while. Yeah. My wife, my wife at that time, um, uh, her name was Teresa. She, she still played. She was a pianist. Uh, in fact, we met in one of the bands I was with out here. And uh, we were together for 37 years before she passed away in October of 21. Uh, so now, and I, I retired from that school district, Alhambra Unified School District. My last day on the payroll with them was last December 30th on um, 2022. So I am recently retired. Good for you. Congratulations. I'm, I'm, Thank you. I, I, I'm playing. I'm I'm playing my bass every day, even if it's only for a few minutes. I'm playing with a few friends of mine, uh, you know, on a regular basis. 
not nothing special. We're not songwriting. We have no no delusions of grandeur. We're just having fun. <laughs> That's what matters. <laughs> Which is a big difference from playing music to have fun as opposed to ha having to play music to make a living. Yeah, I would imagine it's a big difference. But nevertheless, you know, you've got these remarkable, you know, stories of of your career that are pretty amazing. Do the people you play with them? I mean, they must they must know. I mean, did or did did students know that that you had this experience every once in a while that <laughs> I, I call David, you know, the, my call my, my, my time in the music industry. That was my first career. <laughs> the, the school, that was my second career. Every once in a while, my first career would leak out to somebody and it kind of culminated in my boss asking me to um, address the Rotary Club and just give a brief presentation on what that was like. <laughs> as part of their interesting speakers. Uh, so I, I, I did that in uh, in uh, March of, of 2020, right before the right before the pandemic and the lockdown. So you're going to be a part of the uh, the David Bowie World Fan Convention in New York in, in June. Tell me about that and, and what you'll be doing there. Uh, probably some interviews, uh, some um, autographs and handshaking and and meeting some of the fans that, that you know the fans that have you know that really have taken david's music to heart and have identified with it i'll be able to meet them and I, i'm looking at it as me being able to show my appreciation to them if someone comes and asks me for an interview uh, or a an autograph i will i will be more than willing to give it to them that's my appreciation to them for supporting David and his music and actually helping me along, you know, because I benefited from it also for that five or six years I was there. I benefited from it immensely. Well, I have to tell you, it's really been a, a joy and an honor to talk to you. You are a part of some of the best music of my life. I'm just a fan. But, uh, you know, David Bowie's music has always meant a lot to me and to have an opportunity to speak to you has been a, a real thrill. And I wish you all the luck in the world. Michael, thank you very much. And and, and thank you. How, however, this came to be connected, I, <laughs> I really appreciated talking to you and, and thank you for talking to me. Absolutely. George, have a great have a great afternoon. I appreciate your time. Thank you. You too. The David Bowie World Fan Convention is happening at the Racket in New York City on June 17th and 18th. You can find out more by going to BowieConvention.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. You can reach me on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. You can also email me at BaxAtRock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.